you're listening to Dear Reader, a book talk show featuring chatty librarians bringing you reading recommendations and a whole lot of book loving. I'm Justine Hanna, here with my fellow librarian and bibliophile Natalie Mason, and we're coming to you from Melbourne Library Service. Justine. Hi, Natalie. Hello. How are you? Good, thanks. That's great. How are you? I'm great. That's politeness. Uh, it is. <laughs> In action. <laughs> Today we're talking about books that have been made into films. Yes, we are. Oh, my God, what a topic. Ugh, it's too many. Too many to talk about. Have you spent the last three months preparing for this recording? No. I have. <laughs> Um, I'm really pleased to introduce our very special guest today, our colleague, Kevin. Hi, Kevin. Hello. Welcome to Yo, Yo, Ma. It's for a friend, sorry. That's a filmic kind of reference. It's a Seinfeld reference. Counts. Still counts. Totally counts. Counts. Totally counts. (laughs) Anything film-related we can get away with today. Thank you for having me. (laughs) I should say something more significant than Yo, Yo, Ma. (laughs) Now you said it twice. Um, So before we get started, we want to remind you that we'd love to hear what you've been reading. So tweet us at Melb Library, that's at M-E-L-B-L-I-B-R-A-R-Y with the hashtag Dear Reader. And you can download Dear Reader episodes at iTunes and SoundCloud by searching for Melbourne Library Service and subscribing. All the books we talk about today and the films will be listed in our show notes on our Goodreads page and you can find that on our website at www.melbournelibraryservice.com.au on the read page. Okay, let's start talking books to film. Natalie, I think you can go first today. The book that I would like to speak to you about today is The Godfather. The book was published in 1969, written by Mario Puzo. The film, 1972, here's a bit about both. Um, I bought the book in a secondhand bookshop on a weekend away somewhere and I read it in a couple of days. I can't remember how long ago that was. I think it's about 15 years ago. And I've reread it a few times since then. It's a book that I go back to. Um, The Godfather is a sprawling crime novel, an intergenerational family saga. It is a book that brilliantly captures a family in the midst of upheaval and illustrates what it is for a hero to become a villain. Mm. It is set in New York and covers a 10-year period from the end of the Second World War in 1945 to the mid-1950s. The book tells the story of the Corleone family, a mafia family headed by Don Vito. And Corleone, for all my non-Italian speaking friends, means Lionheart in Italian. There are four mafia families in New York and they're all getting along fairly well until, until an attempt is made to kill Don Vito, the head of the Corleones. He survives, however, his sons, Santino and Michael, step in to run the family business, in inverted commas. The two sons are helped by the consigliere, Tom, who has worked with their father for a very long time, and he continues to advise them as he would his father. Um, The sons take violent action against the people who attempted to kill their father, and the repercussion of this violence is more violence but directed back again towards the Corleones. And that results in a shift where Michael steps up to be the new Don or head of the family to replace his father. The book for me is about family, loyalty, revenge, asking for favours, making deals when you may not otherwise, protecting what is yours, food, celebrations of life, vengeance, awful murders, loss, grief, redemption and Italians. 
One of the most interesting things for me about the book is the character of Michael. Um, he is initially resistant to being involved in the family business. He would much prefer it to run legitimately and not be based on bribery or strong arming or other acts of violence. He takes an almost pacifist approach at the beginning of the book and he has quite a strange relationship with his father. But this dra- drastically changes when his father is almost killed. It's like something that had stretched to allow him to, aro- to roam far from his family suddenly tightens and he springs right back into that family fold and takes up his place he takes charge he orchestrates all kinds of revenge cruelty but then cleverly and then he somehow kind of hardens and it's hard to say if that softness we saw in the beginning of the book still remains in him he's a really interesting character to read as he starts to grapple with his own conscience and as he descends into someone quite different from the beginning of the book i loved this book now, here's, the, here's the, um, the big reveal. I only saw the film a couple of months ago for the first time. I am an adult. Wow. <laughs> I know. I somehow never saw the film. I love the book so much. Do you have that too? Were you a bit scared yes. of the film? Yeah, I think yeah. That's, um, that's very noble. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> to, to refrain from. My restraint yeah. is yeah. noble. Yeah, definitely. Well, the film is, and rightfully so, revered and well-loved and sort of touted as one of the best films ever made. And it was made in 1972. Perhaps one of the reasons why I love it almost as much as the book is that the author of the book, Mario Puzo, co-wrote the screenplay with Francis Ford Coppola, who directed the film. And the film has a lot of the same feel and, interestingly, dialogue um, as the book itself. Even though the act of writing a screenplay is entirely different to the act of writing a novel and not all authors can write screenplays, especially of their own books when they're so close to them. But I think Puzo is an exception and I guess to prove that point, he won two Academy Awards, one for the screenplay of The Godfather and one for the screenplay of The Godfather 2. It's kind of incredible. Um, He co-wrote the screenplay for the second film in 1974, so only two years after the first film came out, but it wasn't until 10 years later that he wrote the sequel to the book. He'd had 10 years after the second film came out to really think about how he was going to follow up the book The Godfather. The the sequel is called The Sicilian. Um, I really don't know what to say about the film that hasn't already been said by everyone. I'm sure everyone's already seen it. I must be the last person. It really truly is one of the greatest films of all time. All I wanted to mention briefly about the film was how it deviates from the book because really the book is the kind of beating heart of of my review today. Um, It leaves out a few of the backstories of some of the secondary characters. So in the film they have this undying loyalty to the Don and they will do anything that they're asked in the in the book, it really explains how that loyalty um, is earned and where it comes from and, you know, all the favours and deals that have been done by families and who owes whom from really a long time ago and back in Italy even before these families migrated to New York and started to set up, you know, their, they established themselves as, you know, kind of leaders. Um there's Johnny Fontaine. His backstory is pretty much omitted in the first film. I think that comes into the second film, but not in the first. Um, and I guess the biggest difference is the ending, which is, you know, always always a surprise when the film ends quite differently to the book. Um, the book ends with Michael's wife, Kay, who's played by Diane Keaton in the film. Um, in the book, she converts to Catholicism and really accepts Michael's role as the head of the family and all of the ruthlessness that that entails. In the film, she's really uncomfortable to learn of Michael's new position and her discomfort grows and grows over the following films whereas in the first book certainly she seems to make peace with that that that's her new life and her role now is you know the wife of the don okay thanks for listening to me talk about the godfather (laughs) thanks natalie interesting thank you natalie kevin what Ah, is your book to film that you would like to talk about today uh mine's another interesting example of adaptation 
uh, like The Godfather, I think, um, in that the book and the film were written at the same time by the same person. You know, to get to it, it's 2001 A Space Odyssey. That's what I'm going to be talking about. Directed famously by Stanley Kubrick, I'm sure everyone's heard of, and written by Arthur C. Clarke. Now, Kubrick approached Clark in 63 or something, I believe, um, with uh, the ambitious request to help him with, with, with a film that will um, chart human evolution and, and give a glimpse of the transcendent. Uh, never, never one to set his aims low was Kubrick. <laughs> um, so they looked at some of Clark's older short stories. One was called The Sentinel. One was called Encounter at the Dawn. Um, I want to be very careful to not introduce any spoilers into my review. But essentially, uh, The Sentinel is an early Arthur C. Clarke short story that charts the first manned mission to the moon, obviously before we had actually been to the moon, and an artefact is found on the moon of extraterrestrial origin. And it kind of just leaves off there, you know. It's like, wow, this is he wrote it in the 50s, you know. Mm. Humanity gets to the moon and finds something that we did not put there. That's an, uh, that's awe-inspiring enough. The other one is Encounter at the Dawn, which takes us back to when humanity were still living in caves as, as apes. And uh, one day we wake up and find an artefact. So they looked at these two stories um, and Kubrick said, let's write an original. I'll have input, but it's your, it's your baby, Arthur. Write, write me a screenplay, but write yourself a book. Um, so this is 63, I believe. Um, the film got released in um, 68. Kubrick was uh, very slow, ambitious, but very slow, um, but very thorough. Um, so 2001 A Space Odyssey, it charts human evolution from the dawn of, of humankind um, to a, a quite wondrous journey uh, to our next step. What I find interesting about the two separate entities, that is the book and the film, is I do not think there has been an example of, of a book and a film written at the same time by the same person. And there's another very interesting book called The Lost Worlds of 2001 by Arthur C. Clarke, which is basically his diaries of right. working with Stanley Kubrick and producing this film. And you do get to see how Kubrick's ideas fed into the book and how Clark's ideas fit into the film, vice versa, mm. um, and and how they came to this very unique entity. It's to me, being a fan, such a fan of both, um, they're inseparable. Mm. They're, it's uh, it's a story told using two mediums, and they're companions to mm. one another. They complement each other. Complement each other perfectly. I first saw the film when I was 17. Uh, it's a very enigmatic film. Um, it sort of, Kubrick liked to make his point indirectly. Uh, he didn't want to be too didactic, I guess. Um, he liked to suggest things and leave it to the viewer. Um, so I saw that as a 17 year old and was just blown away. And then I think watched it several times in a row and then sought out a copy of the book because I wanted answers because it does leave a lot to the imagination. So um, I thought, well, where am I going to find the answers? I'll go and find the book. Uh, the book is that little, well, a lot more literal. Yeah. And it's also a lot more human. One of the things that Kubrick was criticised for, and it's actually a thing I love about Kubrick, is his immense detachment 
from subject matter, particularly people. He see yeah. he views all his characters and stories from a historian's point of view. You know, he's not interested in in characters, in people. He's interested in the grander mythic vision that he's pursuing. Whereas Arthur C. Clarke, I'm tempted to say, was a little bit more poetic and sentimental. Like he was a, you know, it's one of those things. Oh, science fiction. It's just a genre, you know. But it's. Um, he it's, was a scientist, wasn't he? He was a scientist, yes. but he had a poet's sensitivity and wonder. Like he, he once said something along the lines of, if you look up at the stars at night and you don't feel awe, you don't have a soul or something. And it comes across in the writing so beautifully. Without giving spoilers away, there's, there's an amazing sequence at the end of the film and an amazing series of chapters at the end of the book. The sequence in the film is awe-inspiring. It's, it's mind-blowing. The correlating kind of sequence, if you will, in the book is equally awe-inspiring awe and mind-blowing, but it's really moving. Mm. Um, so it's it's really interesting. So you've got kind of two different sen sensibilities working on the same project and producing two sort of streams of it, and I think they, they complement each other beautifully. Um, what a I, remarkable yes. collaboration. Sorry yeah, to yeah. interject. Oh, I just wanted to ask, did you find the answers you were seeking yeah. from the book? Uh, yes and no. Um, one of the unique things about about 2001, and when I say that I mean the book and the film and the whole mythos, if you will, is it's they, saw, they looked at every science fiction film that had ever been made and decided most of them were rubbish. <laughs> and they said, we want this to be a believable they both agreed upon this at the start, a believable account of humanity's first contact with an alien intelligence. And we want to give people, both in, in written form and in, in filmic form, a glimpse of the transcendent. Not an easy task for two, mm. even two great artists like that. Mm. Um, so it does give you a glimpse of things. And, it, you know, I think I did get, get my answers ultimately. Now I'm so much older um, <laughs> because it really fired my imagination and um, that's an answer in itself I guess in, in some Indeed. ways. Yeah. And I also feel like the movie being so enigmatic as you said um, <clears throat> almost encourages the, the watcher or the reader, if mm -hmm. you like, to create their own story from exactly. it as well. Yeah. So it's not just the book and the movie in this instance. It's actually the book and the movie and then what you, when you're watching, drawing from it and the conclusions you're drawing and the answers you find yourself and you're creating that story along with it mm. and then you're going away and potentially reading the book as well if you haven't already and, and that just en encompasses a world of stories that you have participated in. Does that make yeah. sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. And both men were... We're all for that kind of um, almost collaborative approach with your, your audience or your readers, you know. Um, yeah. Ultimately, for any work of art, I think it's the, the recipient's interpretation that matters, whether that's the viewer or the reader, of course. Yeah. yeah. Here's a terrible pun. There's a oh, lot of, thank you. I love a terrible yeah, pun. Yeah, I'm just Yay. telling you it's coming so yes. you're prepared. Yeah. There's a lot of space in that film. There's a lot of silence. There's a lot of long scenes with no dialogue. There's a lot of wide open vistas. There's a lot of, and I think to what Justine was saying, that's where you sit as the reader or the viewer. You put yourself in there and try and piece together, well, what's going on in this space? You know, I'm here. What's what's around me? What does this mean? How does this relate to the previous scene? Because mm. there's not a lot of dialogue. No. Nothing is spoon-fed to you, as you've, you know, mm. very eloquently described already about Kubrick. So 
there's a lot of space in this yes. film about space. Yeah. A lot of space for speculation, you might say. Yeah. <laughs> um, but interestingly, that touches on what one of their goals was, which was to realistically, this is in, you know, again, they started working together in 63 before we'd been to the moon, before we had any real clear pictures of what Earth looked like from space. You know, it's an amazingly realised film, again, in a book. Um, but one of their, their goals was reality. Mm. So they actually wanted to... Um, give us an idea of what the tedium of space life would, life would be like, mm. which is a lot of waiting and slow moving, you know. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah. I've read a lot of Arthur C. Clarke. I, uh, my first love was science fiction when I mm. sort of was getting into genre reading. And uh, he is just so good. And because of his scientific background and his knowledge, I think he was able to, to really... Um, you know, predict almost, give us an idea. He really thought through the, you know, various sciences and, and, and what it might take and, and actually really gave us, I think, a really um, a thoughtful view of what it would be like when we do finally make yeah. it to space. And Absolutely. It's just amazing when you think of the time, like you say, that they started in 63. It's amazing. And again, the, the, the brain of a scientist and the heart of a poet, like <laughs> there's a very rare combination in, in that kind of refinement, you know, like mm. how he had refined both and, yeah. I also like the groovy space travel. Can I say that? The That's groovy not... space travel. It's so 60s. Oh, yeah, some of the outfits, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But, but the whole, but everything about yeah. it. Well, interestingly, the film, um, I didn't know whether to touch on this, but uh, the film stayed in the red for a long time in that it did not start to make money back. It was not initially successful at all. It was a counterculture that pulled it out of the red. Yeah, groovy is the word. <laughs> groovy is the word for 2001. Sure yes. is. It was a groovy year. Yes. Um, Justine, have you got a groovy book to, and film to tell us about? I'm not so sure it's groovy, although some of the outfits in there, I have to say, I crave. Um, but I'm actually going to change things up. Mine is a bit more traditional, in a, in a sense. I'm going to talk about a book that was written in 2012 and a movie that was released in June this year, 2016. And the book is called Me Before You by Jojo Moyes. Um, I really enjoyed reading it, and it just so happens that I've seen the movie recently, so I thought I'd share my thoughts. Uh, I actually found it hard to believe I hadn't mentioned this book before on Dear Reader, um, but I have talked about the sequel, uh, so... I kind of feel like I've already mentioned it, but I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead anyway. <laughs> so as I said, the book was published in 2012, and it features 26-year-old Louisa Clark, who lives with her working-class family in a small English town. She's not terribly ambitious, and she loves her job as a waitress at the Buttered Bun Tea Shop. When the tea shop closes down, and her younger sister Trina, the smart one, wants to go back to studying, Louisa, who also helps support her family financially, has to find another job. After several failed attempts, she's offered a job caring for a quadriplegic, Will Trainer. Before the accident which paralysed him, Will was a successful, wealthy, active and adventurous young man. The book follows their relationship as it develops from Will's initial bitterness and resentment and Louise's uncertainty to a gradual friendship and care. And I'm not spoiling things here, it's kind of obvious, they eventually fall in love. When I first picked up the book, I thought it was going to be a fluffy love story and nothing more. I was not prepared for the tears I would shed. And... Boy, did I cry buckets. Yes, it's a love story, but it's also the story of a person who has lost the desire to live, and nothing, not even love it seems, is going to make a difference to him. It's a polarising book in a lot of ways. Some people see it as glamorising euthanasia. I didn't see it that way at all, but I can understand the arguments. 
The movie's just been released and it stars Amelia Clarke of Game of Thrones fame and Sam Claflin as the two leads and it was directed by Thea Sharrock. I would never normally go see a movie that I knew was going to make me cry. I just don't like crying in public. It's I go all puffy and red and splotchy and who needs to see that? <laughs> but I loved the book and I wanted to see the movie so I took my mum along, crossed my fingers that they hadn't make it into a treacly love story and missed the point altogether and they hadn't. It was pretty faithful to the book and Amelia Clark was brilliant as Lou. Her eyebrows are the most incredibly expressive. I had no idea how many emotions you can express with your eyebrows and forehead. It was really an eye-opener in a lot of ways. In my opinion, the book is heaps better. The movie skims over some of the characters and both sets of parents don't get the treatment they deserve. The book flushes them out all out a lot more. Lou's parents are actually quite desperately in need of financial support and their um, life is quite bleak and that didn't really come across in the movie. Will's dad is quite sleazy in the book and he was far too nice in the movie for my taste and his mum is actually really quite cold, distant and almost mean and she was far too nice as well in the movie. So those things just detracted from the story of the movie, but because I knew that they existed in the book, it was okay for me. Um, Jojo Moyes was actually involved in writing the screenplay. I hadn't realised that, um, but she is was. And I think that's why the movie was as good as it was. Um, if you haven't read the book, you can watch the movie and get most of the story and the emotional undercurrent. Uh, but the book is truly so much better, really just um, streets ahead. And I, I actually would dare to say that that might be the case in general. What do you think? Uh, is the book better? The book is better every time. <laughs> every time. Uh, <laughs> For our controversial. Comfort. Yeah. Con well, no, not controversial. Um, subjective, I think is. Well, that's yeah. and perfectly it, true. <laughs> it depends on the book and it depends on the film. Mm. Um, there's a couple I can think of where I think the film is superior. Ooh. Well, mm. you know what? I just happen to have prepared a list of <laughs> books that have been made into films that you may have seen okay. earlier. Yep. So why don't, we, why don't we rifle through these? Mm -hmm. Does anyone want to talk to me about The Shining, the book, the Stephen King book? That movie creaked me out. It's supposed to. It's Mr Kubrick again, mm -hmm. um, tackling the horror genre. Not my favourite Kubrick film. But, really? Um, it's certainly it's a Kubrick film, so enough said. <laughs> haven't read the book. So. The book is creepy and yeah. perfect. Perfect. It's like It and Carrie. I love Stephen King. Mm. Um, the books are creepier and always more disturbing than the films. And mm. the films are pretty disturbing. Carrie certainly mm. is a very disturbing film, but the oh, book is... Too, yeah. yeah. Interestingly, with The Shining, though, Kubrick worked with, um, I can't remember her name, but a renowned psychoanalysis to flesh out that that book and, and, and sort of take it in that direction and, and view it from that angle. And I don't think King was very happy with it. No, I don't think he's been particularly happy with many of the yeah, adaptations yeah. of his books. Really? Yep. It scared me. It is in the clown movie? Yeah. Yeah, well, that's because clowns I, are scary. Yeah. I haven't read it, but the <laughs> film terrified me. Anyone want to talk about Silence of the Lambs? I loved both the book and the movie, but I actually think the movie's better. I think that the film actually cut out some stuff that wasn't necessary. Like, yeah, the stuff in the book that is, didn't make the film sort of flesh that fleshes out parts of it, but they weren't the most interesting. And for me, the book tightened, sorry, the movie tightened the story, uh, the, the key elements of it. And, um, and it was, it was pretty darn perfect for me. That actually segues into another one on the list perfectly, um, that I do consider myself a little bit more of a, 
I don't want to be so bold as to say an authority on, but I know more about uh, No Country for Old Men, mm. Cormac McCarthy. Um, fantastic film um, and a good book. But <laughs> I think the film, again, is better for that same reason, Justine, that um, especially in the character of the antagonist, Anton Chigurh, um, the, the book goes just that little bit too far into his um, his personality, whereas in the film he is... A completely, uh, his motives are, are, are completely baffling. His whole modus operandi, which adds to the to the um, the terror of, of the character. Mm. Um, still a great book and beautifully written, but um, yeah, I think the film is superior. And quite contemporary too. That was only about ten years ago. Yeah, two thousand five, I think, was the book. Some would argue the last really good American film made. Truly. Thus far. You Some, know, someone in this, this, stage, in yeah. this recording studio might yeah. argue that? Yeah. Is that? Is that you, Justine? I, uh, I think okay. it might not have been me. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure if it's me, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> <laughs> I could talk about the colour purple for about 40 minutes, but I don't know if you guys have got time well, no, for that. I, I intend to revisit. The book is fantastic. Won a Pulitzer Prize. The film is, you know, violent and disturbing, but the book does it a little bit better, I find. Um, the the book, sorry, the film makes the violence more explicit. The book, the violence is a looming presence and there's a threat of it always, and it is present. But the film is just, I've found the violence slightly more gratuitous, but it does, you know, the, the book does beautiful things about, you know, kind of exploring gender roles, same-sex relationships, um, you know, and what life was like for African-American women in the rural south of the United States in the 30s, which was a bleak time. Is it a Steven Spielberg film? Uh, yes. Yeah. Yes. i not read the book, but I remember really enjoying that film when and I was young and I, I really want to revisit it. It yeah. came after a string of blockbusters that Spielberg did mm. in the early 80s and then he did this really kind of touching film with a lot of care, Um, Mm. you know, and not to detract from anything that we've just said about it, but Oprah Winfrey's in it. Ah, yes, of course. (laughs) That's all. (laughs) The Princess Bride. Ah, great film. Haven't read it, but... Yeah. Great book, great film, and yeah, look, they're quite different. I when I because I'd seen the film before I read the book, and when I read the book, the book actually goes on past the ending of the movie, and I was like, what, what, what what's happening? What is this? It was so different for me, um, and also I guess normally I would read the book before seeing the movie, but it's a, you know an older movie, and my 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 parents had shown it to me as a child. I love that movie so much. Yeah. Yep. I was thinking maybe because the grandfather reads the book in the film that that technically counts as me having read the book as well. <laughs> uh, so it's close. You've had it read to you by Peter Falk. Yeah, Columbo I know. Columbo, exactly. <laughs> and, I mean, it's such a brilliant movie, the way it uses that, that whole mm. sort of meta, yes. you know, formula. Being I thought it was just fabulous. And, and then and how it, it, it breaks the movie as well to come back to that and then picks it up again with the reading. I just, I love the whole scenario, the whole setup, and then the actual story itself. And oh, it was just as you wish. I mean, how can you not love it? Mm. The Hobbit, Lord of the Rings. Oh, can't, let's not talk about The Hobbit. That's like, let's not talk about the war. It's just why. I love The Lord of the Rings. I actually read it at least once a year. And in fact, I've read it more times than years I've been alive in the course of my life. So I guess it's safe to say you, you've gotten into the Hobbit of reading it. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> that is gold star, Kevin. Yes. <laughs> the Man Who Fell to Earth. Oh. Beautiful book. Uh, beautiful book, beautiful film. Um, Kind of timely, um, 
Bowie, of course. Oh, yes, of course. Um, was amongst his many talents an amazing actor, um, especially in The Man Who Fell to Earth, the film. He, he acts so beautifully visually in that film. Uh, you were talking about Amelia Clark using her expressions exactly the same um, with Bowie in the film. And again, like 2001, a very non-linear, enigmatic film. Um, it's more... It's more about textures, the film. It's more about suggesting his immortality and his alienness, whereas the film goes goes more into it, you know. Um, the book goes more into it? Excuse me. Yeah, uh, the book goes more into it. Um, but they're both really moving, um, like incredibly moving story, um, incredibly moving film and book. But I could waffle on about this forever, so I'll let you guys talk about oh, this. Oh, I, loved, I yeah. loved the the book, and I, I'm relatively positive I watched the movie in high school, so my memory of it is a bit shaky. Um, but, yeah, it's just such a, a quiet, um, soulful, compelling story that really dissects humanity, and it's it's really quite bleak actually mm. um and i i just the the main character that bowie plays is tj newton um and he's such an interesting person shall we say mm, do mm. we say person um are we giving away anything if we say he's an alien i don't think so no, no. Uh, it's absolutely i thought it was incredibly realistic um and i just i thought bowie was the perfect person to play that role you need someone who um has that that's almost, um, well, alien sort of look, and yeah. he just was spectacular. Again, with the making, Nicholas Rogue, who directed it, very intuitive director, so he wanted to cast, excuse me, cast uh, Peter O'Toole, um, but then he happened to see a documentary called Cracked Actor, which was following Bowie around 1974 in the back of a limo. And he wasn't a healthy man, let's just leave it at that, at that stage. <laughs> and he said, that's my Thomas Newton. Interestingly, sorry, one more thing I'd like to add. The book, and it does come through in the film as well, is a very thinly veiled account um, of alcoholism, the author's alcoholism. Just say someone hasn't read the book or sorry. seen the film, wh which one would the, should they start with? What would you both recommend? I don't think it matters. I don't think it matters either. I started with the film. I started is, with the book. Yeah. Maybe start yeah. with the book then. Yeah, oh, yeah, it's up to the individual. Oh well, if I meet yeah. an individual like that, I'll yeah. let I'll let her know she yeah. should start with the Absolutely. book. You yeah. do that, Natalie. Yeah. Well, the book is always better, so I truly should. But I think this is another example, like two thousand and one, mm. where the director of the film has just used the medium. So that's the challenge of adaptation. So you can read our show notes, including a list of the books we discussed on our Goodreads page, which you can find on our website at www.melbournelibraryservice.com.au and on the Read page. We'd also love you to tell us what you've been reading or watching even and ask us for a reading recommendation. Tweet us at melblibrary, that's M-E-L-B-L-I-B-R-A-R-Y with the hashtag Dear Reader or join the conversation on Goodreads. Don't forget you can download Dear Reader episodes at SoundCloud or iTunes by searching for Melbourne Library Service and you can also subscribe. Yes, you can, Natalie. <laughs> All the books and movies we've discussed today, except for the current releases, um, I believe are available in the library service, so do check that out at melbournelibraryservice.com.au. And the groovy music on our program is by Ben Mason. Check out more of his music at www.benmason.com.au. And until next time, dear reader, thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.